What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. What are your writing dreams? Finishing that book, quitting the day job, becoming a best-selling author? Well, over four years, we've studied the advice of over 300 best-selling authors who've collectively sold over half a billion books. And we are excited to announce the Best Seller Academy. If you're ready to take your writing to the next level with accountability, craft, and coaching, your bestseller dreams are now only a click away. To find out more and apply, visit bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. That's bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash academy. Let's run the show. Hello and welcome to the Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay. And I'm Mark DeVoe. And we want to say thank you to everyone for joining us again this week. We're really delighted you're here. And we want to say thank you especially to our so new supporters of the podcast, and in particular to Sonia, who signed up for that was one of our patrons this week. Sonia, thank you so much. And if you would like to be like Sonia, pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and get loads and loads of bonus goodies. Not least, not least, some extended versions of this podcast, some deep dives on very specific subject matter and all kinds of amazing goodies. So do come along and join us um, and support this podcast. Mr. Stay, there's tons and tons of dates happening this week. Let's just run through them. Yes, there's gather round, everyone, gather round. So get your file effects out, okay? Turn, turn to- Palm pilots. To, exactly, palm <laughs> pilots. My wife still uses a file effect. She swears what? by it. So yeah, she's wow. still papered up. And, you know, we use, we've got, because we're an all Apple family, all Apple devices. Uh, so we yeah. use the Apple, you know, diary to-, to, to um, you know coordinate everything except claire she's got to do it on paper and if it's not on paper it doesn't happen <laughs> i like so, claire uh, <laughs> i like people who use paper i think it's underrated personally <laughs> so i used i did have a colleague um at orion who got really really annoyed if we ever moved a meeting because it meant getting the tip x out i love it oh my god but anyway yes gather, gather you round, children gather you around get your diaries out so uh, so this episode's going out Monday, 17th of April, 2023. Uh, this week is London Book Fair, uh, and I'm going to be there for a couple of days. So Wednesday the 19th, uh, I'm doing a, a thing called Be Yourself Online. It's at five o'clock at 
um, at the London Book Fair. It's part of the Bite the Book thing. There's a whole networking thing afterwards. So we're going to be talking about, mm. you know, going online, being yourself, websites, social media, all that good stuff, and lots of catching up afterwards. So that'll be a good one if you're at the Book Fair as an author. And then on Thursday 20th, I'll be talking to the author Sophie Keach. She's got a new audio book out on Audio First Book. That's at one o'clock. So that's London Book Fair. Okay, so if you're going to that, I'll see you there. Say hello. Um, we talked now. We talked about this last week, didn't we? Uh, I've got a presentation uh, which I'm calling "What Next." So it's for authors who've done their first draft and they're going to go out to agents or they're thinking of self-publishing or, get, or going to digital first publishers or they're just thinking, "Well, I've written my book. What next?" So I'm doing a whole presentation about that. It's going to be on Monday, 24th of. April, which is very soon. And Mr. D, they can register for this, can't they? Yeah, they can. So we're going to be doing this presentation in the Academy. So um, if you would like to be a part of that, if you're an Academy member already, it's going to be just part of your monthly wonderful goodies that you get from, from, from us in the Academy. But if you're not in the Academy and you've always been interested in what is the Academy? And I'd like to try it out. Well, you can, you, you're invited to come along if you're a patron. So sign up to become a patron if you want to be, um, which is, I mean, it's so it costs barely anything to become a patron folks. So you just do that anyway, regardless, but come along and, and come to the Academy. Mark and I will be there. It'll be a double session. I'll be introducing Mr. Stay and, mm. we'll be, and there's a Q and the great thing is there's a Q and a section at the end as well. So it's yeah. interactive. It's going to be on zoom. Um, but you know, this is also, this is also not just people who finished their book or they're coming to the end of their book. I think it's just as important for anyone who's starting their book yeah, out because it it's about it thinking about, I love Stephen Covey's quote. He always said, think with the end in mind. And I think mm. if you're starting on the journey of the book, it's all really important to start thinking about what you might want to do when you finished your book. You know, do you want to publish it? directly as an independent author do you want to pitch it and how does that work and mark's going to be covering all those things so do come along to register for that you can do that on the home page of the academy so you simply go to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com and the thing i'm really excited about mark is there's an opportunity for us to see and meet some of the people who listen to this show who yeah. we've maybe never interacted with so just come along so we can say hello and and um, get to know who you are a bit as well and find out a bit yeah. more about what you're working on. So that's the 24th of April. Now that is happening at 8 p.m. UK time. It'll be 12 p.m. PST. That's West Coast America. And 3 p.m. if you're somewhere in the middle, that's around the uh, <laughs> uh, the New York, uh, Toronto area. And then it'll be, I believe, 5 a.m. in the morning if you're in Australia. I know that's very early. But we have people in the academy we do. In Australia and New Zealand. And they yep. show up for the coaching at 5 a.m. I yep. mean, talk about dedicated. It's absolutely brilliant. And it's a great way of getting your words in in the morning as well after <laughs> the track coaching. So do pop along, academy.bestsellerexperiment.com. Get your name in. The, the, the form is now live. Um, we might have to limit numbers if, it's, if there's a lot of people who want to come. So, you know, make sure you get in early. And after that, same week, actually, 27th of April, uh, the Unwelcome Spoiler Special. So we're going to be talking about my film, Unwelcome, and we're going to have some special guests. So we might have the director, John Wright. I know he's busy at the moment. We're going to have our VFX supervisor, Paddy Eason, the cinematographer, Hamish Doyne Ditmus, the first AD, Terry Bamba, and the actor, Rick Warden, who uh, wrangled our red caps. It's going to be lots and lots of fun. So if you've seen Unwelcome and you've got all sorts of questions about it, uh, you will get answers. So come along to that. Am I right in thinking, Mark, that the people that worked on your film, some of them also worked on Harry Potter and Star Wars? Oh, in yeah, some yeah, yeah. Capacity. Yeah. I mean, yeah, okay, so absolutely. folks, if you're a Harry Potter and a Star Wars fan, <laughs> this is an opportunity. And Bond. 
and um, Bond. Yeah. It's an opportunity to yeah. meet some of the people behind these films and ask questions. So <laughs> if you want to be a part of that, it's going to be an absolutely huge amount of fun. The way to find out how that's happening is very simple. You sign up to the Bestseller Experiment newsletter and you will get information on the, you know, where it's happening. We'll send you the URL. We'll send you a reminder just before it happens. Um, so to do that, go to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash, well, not forward slash, go to bestsellerexperiment.com and click on the newsletter icon put your name in and you will be on the list to join us. And it's going to be a riot. It always is. I don't think we've ever actually, in my in my memory of six years plus of this podcast that Mark, I don't think we've ever done a live show with that number of special guests. It's going to be absolute pandemonium and brilliance. <laughs> Wrangling cats comes to mind. Wrangling yeah, cats. Because yeah. this what? is, the, the other thing is this, when you and I speak, it's all very civilised. We're very professional. Yeah. This lot, I have no idea where this is going. <laughs> You like being down a London pub on a Friday night. It might. It, it might. Be. Yeah. But listen, <laughs> folks, it's a free yeah. event. So just come along and enjoy the fun and see what happens when Mark and I let a, a load of people into the same room. It's, it's going to be brilliant. Um, so there's just so much coming. And one other thing we're going to tease you with, folks, before we oh, dive yes. into this amazing interview we've got this week, is uh, we are launching next month, starting May 1st, which is a Monday, which is a Bestseller Experiment release day for our podcast. We are starting the May 200 word challenge. Dun, dun, mm. dun. And if you're interested <laughs> in finding out what that means, and if you're interested in finding out what it means, if you've already been doing it and how you can get involved, we're going to talk about it after the interview. So meet us after the interview. But Mark, tell us about this incredible interview we've got today. I think it's one of the most in-depth we've done actually on the podcast. <laughs> It's a whopper, uh, but you know, it's we don't muck around. This is you get value for money on this one. I tell you, this is uh, J. S. Monroe, who who is actually John Stock, uh, also known as John Stock. Now he worked as a foreign correspondent in Delhi he, uh, before becoming a full-time writer. His psychological thriller, Find Me, became a bestseller in 2017. That was under the name John Stock. He's the author of five spy thrillers. And then Warner Brothers. There you go. There's a name I know. Um, they bought the film rights to the Dead Spy Running trilogy, uh, which was going to be written by the Oscar-winning screenwriter Stephen Gagan, who wrote Traffic and Syriana. And he was going to write the screenplay for Dead Spy Running. We talk about that a lot in this interview. It's a fascinating story. And But now he's back. He's back, back, back. He's writing as J.S. Monroe with uh, No Place to Hide, which is a thriller with a Faustian pact at its heart. And we discuss how he launched his debut novel with a party at the top of Canary Wharf for virtually nothing, how reinvention has sustained his career, and how there's a weird alchemy at play when it comes to bestsellers. Brilliant. Folks, sit back, get yourself a cup of tea. This is an amazing interview and it's packed full of the most brilliant advice. So enjoy listening with Mark chatting with the absolutely brilliant J.S. Munro. John Monroe, welcome to the Bestseller Experiment. How are you today, sir? Uh, very well, thank you. Very well. Excellent stuff. Now, I've, I've got a proof copy here. The publisher sent me a co proof copy of No Place to Hide. And what I love is it opens with a quote from Christopher Marlowe from Dr. Faustus. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm just up the road from Canterbury, so we know all about Kit Marlowe and Faustus here. And there's a bit of a Faustian pact in No Place to Hide, isn't there? T tell us about that and the influence of, of Faust. Yes, um, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of one of those things I've been wanting to do for a while. Uh, I always think Dr. Faustus by Marlowe is a sort of slightly underrated play. And 
And people forget about some of the, you know, the wonderful lines, you know, was this the face that launched a thousand ships Ships, and burnt the topless towers of Ilium, you know, is the one people forget that came from, from this play. And I think we all use this expression, a Faustian pact. Mm. And perhaps, you know, we don't always realize quite what it means. And it's, I mean, somebody who writes psychological thrillers, it's a fantastically dark and brutal arrangement that Faustus enters into. And I tried to do a, in, in No Place to Hide, a kind of, a sort of loose retelling of the um, of the Faustus story, in the sense that my main character um, Adam is a is a high flying successful doctor. Um, he's got um, a lovely wife, young children, living in southeast London. Works going very well. Uh, he's a sort of consultant paediatrician uh, at Lewisham Hospital. And um, then something happens, catches up. His past catches up with him. And in the in the Faust story, uh, Faustus makes a a pact. Uh, with the devil and he kind of rather dismisses it because he wants unlimited power and knowledge and the devil says yeah you can have that but in 24 years time i want your soul mm-hmm. you know this idea of selling your soul again comes from the faustus story and so my man uh adam dr adam pound he when he was at university uh something as a medical student a sort of slightly uh, riotous time at at cambridge medical school he went to a party and uh, something awful happened Absolutely, truly awful, and uh, in which he was um, he was blamed for. He was sort of uh, implicated in, and he made an arrangement with someone to cover this up, and uh, thought nothing else of it. And the strange person who who was witness to what had happened sort of said, "Well, no problems, but uh, I'd like to make a film of your life at some point." He was trying to make a little film when they were at university together, uh, and in twenty four years' time, maybe I'll come and uh, do that. And he says, "Okay, no problems." He never thinks he'll see him again. 24 years later, uh, Adam's life spectacularly implodes. His his career falls apart. His marriage collapses. His family, the pressures and strains on his family are, are awful. And um, it all happens because his past catches up with him. Mm. And, and I just was really in, intrigued with that. And uh, and I think we all we all kind of make packs in our ways, in our different ways, compromises, you know, trade-offs. And uh, and I, I just really wanted to, to explore that in, in the book. And without it, you don't have to know Dr. Faustus. And I kind of thank goodness for editors. Eh? I mean, actually, one of my editors hadn't read it. One of them had. And the one who hadn't said, look, this is, sounds an amazing play. I've never read it. But you can't assume any knowledge at all. And that's mm-hmm. always a good a good I think a really good thing to remember is that you never underestimate your reader's intelligence, but you mustn't assume knowledge. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I kind of set about writing the book with some some quite, I hope not too heavy uh, sort of info dumps about the player, trying to spread it across. But so people perhaps learn a little bit about the player as well, um, while also having a, a hopefully a terrifying white knuckle ride. Yeah, no, it's, it's brilliant. It's a very light dusting. It gives you just enough. So if you know about it, you know what's going to happen. You, 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 it kind of works on two levels. You kind of know there's, there are not good things ahead, or if not, it's it gives you a little signpost. It's terrific. Another influence on this is Sun Tzu's The Art of War, I believe. So yes. uh, what, what is it about these older texts that make them still so influential now? I, yeah, I mean, there's a character in the book um, called Ji Ma, and actually I, a couple of days a week I help out with some help, help students writing essays at Mansfield College, Oxford, as part of the Royal Literary Fund. They send 100 writers every year around to university campuses. And one of my students is this chap, Ji Ma, who has an encyclopedic knowledge of Sun Tzu's uh, philosophy and Confucius and things. And 
the really good guys, the ones who, I mean, he was writing a long time ago, the really good ones deal with kind of eternal truths and bits mm. of advice, you know. And uh, I, he just used to quote little bits of this to me sometimes, reflecting on his own life. And, you know, one of the, one of the ones that stuck with, with me was uh, if you're in a battle or some sort of conflict, um, appear weak when you are strong and appear strong when you are weak. Right. And I thought that was really kind of, I liked some of that. And again, I just wanted to sort of drop in a, a bit of that. And it was it was quite interesting writing a character, uh, a Chinese character in, in the book um, who is studying here. And, and it was really nice to be able to have Ji help me with that portrayal, although he is a uh, the real G is an international uh, uh, law student doing a, a DPhil in yeah, international law. He's not a techpreneur as he is in the book. Um, and in the book, G Ma is his is a Chinese student twenty four years earlier um, when the, when the book is set in Cambridge twenty four years early, and they come up, and they're still friends twenty four years later. Where G Ma has since become a, a high flying techpreneur. Um, so it was really nice because you have to be you know we're all aware of the dangers of cultural appropriation, telling mm. stories which aren't ours to tell. And uh, I was quite anxious about that, but I feel I had I had kind of um, G in the in the writing cockpit with me and he was able to help and advise on how to make it, make the character as authentic as possible. And, uh, and I hope that, and funny enough, some people have said that that's their, their favourite character is G with these little uh, pearls of wisdom he throws out every now and then based on Sun Tzu and uh, Confucius. Excellent. I do. Whenever you write out of your own experience, I think whether it's a character or uh, you know some expertise or technical thing, it's all part of your due diligence to to check these things and research these things. You go Absolutely. very heavy with research up front, don't you? You you research quite heavily before you write. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. I, I tend to write. I tend to write about. I have a file. I create a file, and I probably have probably between thirty and fifty thousand words of notes. They're not all my own writings. Things I'm kind of like a magpie collecting and I'm putting mm-hmm. into that file, and I, it gets to sort of critical mass where I then know I'm ready to start writing the novel. And I, I do do a lot of real world research. I guess I try to incorporate in my in my thrillers um, stuff which is is really happening in the world. You know, whether it's sort of um, the dangers of uh, uh, the nation becoming addicted to antipsychotic medication, like the opioid crisis in, in America, uh, the dangers of the dark web, which is something that features heavily in um, in, in, in No Place to Hide, um, or one of my first books, Find Me, um, that dealt with sort of uh, post-bereavement hallucinations when you've lost someone very close to you and you think you you see them around the place. So I do do a lot of a lot of real world research and talk to a lot of people, and for some reason it has seemed to have kind of started to circle around these issues of contemporary medicine uh uh pharmacology big pharma and 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 psychiatry and in fact my next book is an actually is a it's just been announced this week as a non-fiction book um about about a psychiatrist a really scary psychiatrist from the 1950s and 60s who kind of occupies the same sort of world i write about when i'm fictionalizing my fictionalizing my world in in js monroe thrillers so i do like to yeah a lot of work up front and then Try and try and wear that research lightly. I think that's a really um, something which, again, I was told quite early on: don't try and yeah. show off your knowledge. Don't try and show how much research you've done. You just got to underpin it. It's it's the sort of the plumbing and wiring uh, of the novel, which is sort of out of sight, but it's all got to work because there's going to be someone like you who knows your Marlowe, you see, and they, you read the book, and you and you're going to make sure you you want to make sure that the bits are actually right, but you also don't want to alienate the person who doesn't have any of that knowledge. And uh, so you have to wear your research lightly. But I do really enjoy the research, yeah, a lot. I love that image of 
it as the plumbing and wiring. That's a great description of it. You mentioned earlier uh, reaching a critical mass of research and then knowing that you've got a story. What are the elements that need to be in place when you go, okay, this is it. I know I can sit down and write a novel now. What are, the, what are those elements that you need to, to move forward? I think I think the main things are, I mean, knowing how you're going to tell the story uh, and whether you're going to have it in this particular case, no place to hide. I've got present ten, uh, pre- present now, the present world, and I've got 24 years earlier. So you're knowing that basic structure. You're also going to know your points of view. And I normally have three different points of view. So it's like right. a camera moving around, looking at over the shoulder of different characters. I'll do third person close generally and three points of view. Um, but for this one, I decided to do one person, just the point of view of Adam. And I'll do it, I'll do it in the present day and in the past. And um, and I decided that that quite early on. So you have to get those things fixed. Then you want to make sure you've got your key, your key kind of uh tentpole characters, the main characters who are going to be propping up the whole thing and make sure they're fully fully rounded uh my temptation always i think as thriller writers it's a common one is that you want to get on and tell the story and i always mm-hmm. have to check myself say no look spend some time on the characters because that will pay off and some of the story will come out of those characters and how they behave so don't try and skimp on the, the getting the characters fully rounded uh and then i i a lot of people differ on this i i know how the story is going to start uh, and i know how it's going to end and i don't know the bits in the middle and uh but i have enough i think no place to hide is my 10th novel now i have enough trust in the um in in the, in the process of storytelling mm-hmm. to know that if you structure it too carefully if you really map it out really really carefully uh you restrict yourself you know because ideas pop into your head as you're writing and you want to yeah. go down a few little avenues and things and uh and and i think you get better at knowing when it's working when it's not and without sounding too pretentious it's kind of like following a path through the woods uh, and I've got better now at knowing, following the path. And if I do stray off it, I know to sort of stop yeah. and get back onto the path before I've written too many words. Yes. So I will know kind of, I, I won't ever write to like three or four chapters and think, oh no, I've got it wrong. This is this is the wrong direction. I kind of, on my dashboard, you know, a, a red flashing lights start flashing quite early on if I know I'm going off, off message. So it's very weird. You do kind of, it's like telling a joke, you know, the punchline, but you might tell it slightly differently, you know, mm. and, 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 I, and I do, it, it doesn't, it doesn't suit everyone uh, i remember hearing uh, years ago um robert harris was on newsnight explaining his second book he had success with fatherland i can't remember what the second book was called and it was um he plotted it out the whole thing chapter by chapter and had walls covered with all these white a4 sheets of what he's going to do throughout the whole thing and perhaps the reason why i can't remember what it was called that book is because it was his least successful one and he's never done that again since it's funny um, i remember watching that as a young writer watching that and he was talking about a plots and b plots and the x axis yes. and the y axis so i was thinking <laughs> is that what i have to do and i, I got to say robert harris that threw me off for years so uh, <laughs> you know if you ever want to come on the podcast and explain yourself yeah i i remember seeing that and being kind of a bit cuz i loved fatherland um absolutely so, yeah yeah, and it didn't, it didn't work for him, and he and he didn't do it again. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. So, thanks, thanks for that. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I remember. Uh, yeah, just going back to what you were saying about being char- characters being fully rounded. What sort of character work are you doing before you write the novel? Is it sort of character biographies or just notes on their sort of? Yeah, arc? I will. I will generally have a yes. I'll, I'll generally have a, a kind of again. I'm because I'm quite disorganized. I'd force myself to have lots of different word documents for different characters and things, and I will. I will. Uh, I, I in the early days, I thought you had to start with a blank canvas and just come up with a character out of nothing. And I realise now, and I think 
any writer who tells you they don't kind of base pe- characters on people they know in real life is probably lying. <laughs> what I tend to do is build a composite character. So I'll take a bit of someone I know's the way he talks, and then I'll take another character of the way he's had four wives or something, you know, and he's put that, and you kind of put them all these different aspects of someone's life and someone's past. Another person over there, I'll take a bit of their, and you put it all together. So you are using kind of authentic character traits, but what you, what I do, my, my element of creativity in terms of creating a character is putting those real life things, aspects and traits of personality I've seen and putting them together in a way which doesn't exist in the real world, but hopefully makes for an interesting, for an interesting character. So bits of GMAR, in the book are actually based on G. Marr, who I know at Oxford, but an awful lot of other stuff is based on other people who, I, who I've met. It has nothing to do with him. And I've tried to tell him that because he's, he's terribly excited he's going to be in a book. I keep saying there are a lot of aspects of this, like you are a billionaire techpreneur living in Mayfair. Isn't isn't you, is it? Because he's a really hard up law student in Oxford. You know? um, so, so you have to sort of, so yes, I do that. And, and I, I think that's the other really, you, you just mentioned it there, the, the character arc. And I think that's something which, it can't be underestimated that how a, how a character kind of progresses and, and changes. And uh, I think they make for the most interesting, interesting stories, you know, mm. that there is a progression, there's a development in that character and how they, how they are in the book. Very much so. I, also, you mentioned their thinking and point of view, and particularly you talked about uh, the point of view being very close, like a camera. And I just want to go back because you started out as a journalist, but you also, I believe you went on the Carlton TV screenwriters course. So was that yeah. a big turning point for you? Or did that sort of develop your story thinking in, in that sort of visual style? It did, actually. It did. I, I remember it was one Carlton TV. Is, you know, it was a long time ago now, but it was a wonderful course. And it was one of those turning points in my life where I, I also at the same time got this opportunity to go and be, um, it was in 1998, to go and be a foreign correspondent in, in Delhi. And I went for that and have no regrets. But I, so I didn't really, I did this Carlton screenwriting course and I didn't pursue it. And it would have been a, a great way in there. I think a lot of people on that course went on to write episodes for London Bridge and things like that, other sort of TV dramas, which needed a huge amount of content all the time. But but one, it was a really nice guy who ran it. And one of the things that stayed with me, uh, which I'm sure you'll know in your your experience of, of screenwriting is, is and it, I think it does carry across to, to writing novels, is getting into a scene as late as you can and getting out of a scene as yes. early as you can. Yeah. And just boiling it down and just thinking really hard what is the essence? What's the pith of this of this scene? You know, what, what are you really trying to do in this particular scene? And I think that that stayed with me. And I think the character arc, and I think that discipline of they were teaching us then. You know, in those days, it was ninety minutes, and you had three acts, and you had to kind of really think about it in that quite a mm. quite a straitjacket way of. And you realised that there was an awful lot more craft, perhaps, than art in in, in writing scripts. And it was you obviously had the, the the sparkling ideas and things that would raise it above that, but the it was a technical nuts and bolts job, yeah. you know, and I think that's people forget about that. That people think it's going to be just sitting at your desk waiting for the muse to strike. But you, when you have to work within those sort of tight architecture of a script, it teaches you a lot of discipline about about writing. It certainly does. Certainly does. Let's talk about your first novel, The Riot Act, which came out in '97, published by Serpent's Tale, which I believe had a launch on the top floor of Canary Wharf, which must have been very exciting. How did that? How yeah. did that come about? And what were your, what were your big lessons from from that? The launch of that so, first novel. Yes, I set myself an ambitious target trying to write. I had my first novel published by the age of um, of thirty, and I didn't. I didn't quite do that. And I and I wanted. We were living in Greenwich in southeast London, and. Uh, there was some a community of people who were living in canal boats down on the creek there near in, in East Greenwich. And it was 
uh, really, again, a sense of place was very strong in the riot act. And it was also set in Cornwall, where I'd been going a lot. My wife's family are from, from Cornwall. And I wanted to, I came up with a kind of real anti-hero, the most, the, the strongest anti-hero I've ever done. He was a very obnoxious kind of uh, anarchist rioter called Dutchie, who was kind of a little bit based on Swampy, who was a protester in those right. days, in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but a bit more edgy. And he'd had a difficult relationship with his father and actually he was from a bit more of a sort of middle-class background than he liked to admit. And there were a lot of conflicting aspects of his <laughs> character, but ultimately he was in love with this, this woman who was killed at the beginning of the, of, of the story. And he wants to find out who, who killed her. And uh, it was a really quite an angry, dark book in a way. And I remember my father, my late father saying, it's a shame I didn't write a nicer book. And uh, he really enjoyed it, but he said it was, it was a bit dark, but it was, it was, I think it was of its time. We still had a lot of bombs going off in the 90s in London yeah. and the IRA uh, was still bombing. They'd bombed Docklands quite recently. And 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 Canary Wharf had only recently been built and it was quite a target. And I was working at the um, at the, for the Telegraph at the time. We were on the 11th to the 15th, 16th floor. There was no 13th floor. Uh, and then the, the Independent and the Mirror were above us up to floor 21. And then the rest of the Canary Wharf Tower was empty. Empty, yeah. Nothing, nothing there. And so at night, the lights only went on it up to floor 21. So I went to ask the management, the tower management people, property management company in the basement. I said, could I um, borrow the uh, top floor for an evening for a party? <laughs> and they said, sure. I think I think it was 250 quid, which I couldn't afford. So I went to Serpent's Tale, a lovely guy called Pete Ayrton, who ran Serpent's Tale for many years. I think he's retired now. And we split it 50-50. <laughs> and, uh, of course, load 350 people turned up for this launch party, not, not to hear the riot act and my little reading of the riot act and things. Uh, it was it was um it was to see the views the wonderful yeah. views and it was this ghostly office just a huge great floor with nothing in it a bit bits of furniture around the place and totally deserted and we put and a lot of the seat the, the finale of the book is set in the top of Canary Wharf Tower and those scenes we set on a friend of mine put them on perspective and then put them against the window blown up really big so people could read the the chapter right on the glass looking out across London uh, in the evening and um there were different days we got champagne pomery we rang them up and said can you give us some champagne they said yes Cobra <laughs> beer gave us hundreds of bottles of beer they were just launching in London and it was a total knees up it was great uh and my wife was very pregnant with our first child who's now 25 so um it was it was an evening to remember we just didn't hire any staff at all so my wife Hillary's parents and my father and stepmother spent the whole evening having to open bottles of beer and champagne because we had no staff. But it was a good fun. It was it was uh, it was of its moment, of its time, and oh. uh, and I got the news that I I'd sent it out to a few publishers directly myself. And I was working in South India actually at the time from an English speaking magazine. It wasn't it wasn't Delhi. It was South India in in Kochi in Kerala. I was working in an English language magazine. This fax came through from Pete Ayrton very slowly and very stretched and said, dear, um, dear John, we would like to publish the riot act. I can offer you 1500 pounds. And this came through on the fax, all stretched. And I turned to this Indian colleague of mine and just gave him this enormous hug. And he was sort of like, Whoa. <laughs> and I said, this is the best news I've ever had. And, uh, and I remember that moment it coming through on the fax in the depths of South India and this lovely message and uh yeah so it came out that was in 96 it came out in 97 yeah fantastic the numbers in that i mean what would a launch uh a book launch on the top of canary wharf cost today you need a russian oligarch to fund that for you wouldn't you <laughs> <laughs> well, only, it was only only three years later then got took a, a taken over by um 
the London Olympic Committee, once London had got the contract right. for the 2012 Olympics, that was their headquarters. And it became this incredibly flash, <laughs> flash office. But we used to have a security guard at the Telegraph who, for a fiver, would take you up onto the top of the tower and you can go outside and walk around that pyramid. Uh, he would show you out the back door and you can have a look Whoa. out there. And the scene of, in the riot act, the finale, is in the pyramid on the inside of the top of that tower. And it was a very eerie place. I just remember the wind the sort of mm. plangent wind, and it was a. I thought there and then that's a great setting for a finale. Oh, that listeners, that sounds like a day out. We should have an, a, a group outing, grab a bus. We'll have to do that one day. Um, then Riot Act was followed by the uh, Cardamom Club, which has since been reissued as the India Spy, and then you have Dead Spy Running, which is the first of the Daniel Marchant trilogy. Yes, so, so the, the Cardamom Club and the India Spy, same book. Yes, yeah, that's basically based on my travels and experience in India. And I think in the publishing world, it's, what, it's what's known as a quiet book. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was still quite fond of it. I didn't have much structure. I had a lot of quite descriptive colour and descriptions of of, uh, of India. But yeah, so I, I kind of, I was in, you know, I wrote that in 2003. So nine, 97, the Riot Act. I was, you know, I was, we had a young family then. I was trying to earn a living as a, as a journalist. I then got a full-time job uh, as the weekend editor of the Telegraph, looking after their lifestyle stuff. And I was commuting from Wiltshire. So I wrote Dead Spy Running, the first 25,000 words, uh, on the train in the mornings. Right. And in, in less so in the evenings, I was a bit tired, but I wrote it on the train, entirely on the train. And um, and I did this first 25,000 words, and then I wanted to get an agent. I didn't have an agent uh, after the, the the quietness of the Cardamom Club. And um, so uh, I started sending it out to agents, and I remember I sent I, I, I sent it out to one agent, a, a well-known agent, and uh, I'm sure people would understand the language. It was, um, thank you for sending me uh, Dead Spy Running. Um, I, I enjoyed it, but don't quite love it enough to yeah. take it out to publishers. And that, one of those great expressions, I don't quite love it enough. You know, <laughs> what they mean is they didn't like it. I don't know why they mean <laughs> <to say> it. <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> they didn't quite like it. So that, that same 25,000 words, I then sent to... Um, Claire Paston, Claire, Claire Conrad Paston now at uh, Janklo and Nesbitt. And a couple of days later, you've got to bear in mind exactly the same 25,000 words. I got a, uh, an email back saying, thank you for sending me the first 25,000 words. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm loving every single word. Please send me more. Wow. Uh, and it was the same, the same words. Yeah. And I always, I always, when I'm giving talks and things, I always say to people, you have to have that element of self-belief and, uh, it's such a fine line between being picked up by an agent and not being picked up by an agent or being oh, published yes. and not being published. And it's like when you crossed over, you look back and think, well, how did that happen? And you think, I'm no different from what I was before I crossed over that line. My words are no different. It's just a hugely subjective business we're trying to apply our trade in. And there's a lot of luck and there's a lot of, of getting the right person. So Claire asked for uh, the rest of the book, which I sent over. Uh, and... Um, she then we had a we had that kind of dream scenario. I've had two, you know, books that didn't do that well. The Riot Act was sold to France and things, and it was, uh, you know, it was it was okay. There'd been some film interest and things, but nothing really happened. But suddenly we had this situation with Dead Spy Running where we had six six publishers um, bidding for it, and it it ended up with Harper Collins, um, and uh, it was going to uh, six months before it came out. We had this approach from Warner Brothers, who then. Um, bought the film rights for what in those days was uh, they bought an option for I mean it was good you know you wouldn't get it now it was a good six-figure option you know yeah, and that was 
very very exciting and it was uh the start of a roller coaster five years i have to say well this is um, uh this is great listeners you should know we ask our authors to complete a form before they come on and they say any anything else you want to tell us and uh, john said uh, dead spy running was optioned by warner brothers nearly turned into a film they spent 10 million dollars developing it over five years and then walked away uh and it, it's mm. uh it's a very familiar story, but yeah, and and also on the website, and I'll put a link to this, uh, listeners, so you can check this out. There are a couple of sizzle reels, which are sort of trailers that uh, filmmakers put together from other movies to give uh, financiers and and other producers and what have you an idea of the tone and the pace of the film and how they could sell it. And these these are full of clips from the Bourne movies and Bond movies. I mean, I want to see that movie or a TV. You know, I would be first in line to see that. So, yeah. what happened? Well, they they hired um, they hired uh, a wonderful screenwriter, uh, Stephen Gagan, mm. who had got an Oscar for his film Traffic, and he'd wrote and directed Syriana with George yeah. Clooney, which is another great and very complex film mm. i think it had four uh storylines interwoven in a complex way and in the original script he told me i think it had about eight and anyone who's seen syriana it's it's still a very complicated film yeah. a very yeah. clever piece of storytelling but he was he was top and they and they decided to have a cerebral screenwriter and a popcorn director they got this chap called mcgee to mm. to direct it and he had done things like um terminator 4 and various other movies and he was he was you know he had a good uh, uh, you know, yes, he he, he was going to bring a certain amount of going to make sure the action and and because uh, this this spy thriller I'd written, Des by Running, was I'd sold it originally with a a blurb, which is another good idea to try and bear in mind how you describe your book when you're trying to sell it. And I described it as John Le Carre meets Jason Bourne to right. give that idea of a slightly yeah. more, hopefully slightly more upmarket, a bit more erudite sort of spin on the espionage world, but not holding back on the uh, a strong driving plot and and action. Mm. So. That was considered to be quite. They, Warner Brothers, Brothers responded to that and got this mixture of a of a of a of a, of a, a intelligent screenwriter with a yeah. with a with a, a no holds barred shameless um, action movie director, and that all sounded great. But uh, they, they just Warner Brothers weren't happy happy with the ending that came up, and we struggled with the ending for quite a long while. Uh, other writers have brought in an ending specialist was brought in. Really? James Moss, who did Planet of the Eight, he was brought in just to sort out the final act, and uh, and and um, and and then then we had this awful awful thing because the book opens with a a runner uh, running at the London Marathon. Unfortunately, he's got a suicide belt around his uh, his midriff, and he's um, not allowed, his pace is not allowed to drop below eight minutes a mile. And if it does, the bomb will go off, and if he deviates off the course, it will go off. So it's it's being calibrated with GPS, and it's a pretty scary opening i've done the london marathon a couple of years earlier and uh and then of course we had the boston marathon disaster where mm. a bomb did go off in the boston marathon and that kind of made warner brothers understandably very nervous and not wanting to right. upset people but in that wonderful way film people do they just said great let's just change the opening to the tour de france just like that. So, just like that. What's, what's the problem? Yeah. Anyway, so then at that stage, they decided to uh, try a whole new team, and they got um, Adam Wingard, who did Kong versus Godzilla recently, mm. as to direct. And he had a background in horror movies. He'd done things like The Guest and lots of VHS sort of found footage movies and things. Yeah. He came yeah. in with his with his writing partner Simon Barrett, and they were told to rewrite the whole thing, ignore the original yeah. script, rewrite the whole thing. So they had to go kind of reinventing the wheel. And then in the end, they said, well, I think we quite like bits of the Gagan script as well and bits of this. <laughs> and, you know, you were, you were heading 
fast towards a camel rather than the horse, I'm afraid. So because there were just too many people involved, very well meaning, very talented people. And it wasn't anyone's fault. It was just one of those things. So the auctions have lapsed. Uh, funny enough, last year, my film agent suddenly got this whole new approach from a British company wanting to do there's a, there's a lot of spy stuff on out yeah. there at the moment. Uh, you know, particularly things like Mick Heron's Slough House. Yes, yeah. Uh, yeah. which is great. And mm. he, you know, he's he's been very supportive actually. And he said, you know, you, you never know when these, it took a long while for his books to catch, catch mm. on. And um, so who knows? It's out there. And if you do look at the sizzle reels, please don't share them on social media, just have a look because the copyright. I imagine the copyright issues are... Oh, it's a minefield, yes. <laughs> they're, they're, I think it's all right just being on there as an example yeah. of, of what yeah. the film would look like. But I hadn't ever come across sizzle reels. But, of course, yeah. whenever I'm feeling... Every now and then I get it out of the box. And I think that's... <laughs> I think, and have a little look and put the lid shut again. But I would say if anyone ever does, is lucky enough to... I'm sure you would agree with this, Mark. You know, get lucky enough to have your film optioned. Don't put that into your predictions financially for what. No, <laughs> um, it, it's a bonus. It's a wonderful bonus if it happens. Yeah. And I've had a bit of interest in some of my more recent stuff. And I just, my wife and I just say, if it happens, great, but keep it in a box and just try and ignore it. And and uh, it's it's a uh, it's a wonderful thing, and it can obviously help book sales enormously. Uh, mm. If it's a complete turkey, it can have another effect. Um, but it's uh, it's not something you should factor into. It's it's a, it's a purely a bonus if it comes mm. off. And I and I, I don't have any. You know, I, I really enjoyed a lot of the aspects of my ride with Dead Spy Running and meeting some. You know, when Steve Gagan first read the book and I had that first meeting with him, it was he had read that book so closely. Right. He knew far more about it than me. He was asking me things. <laughs> such a forensic understanding of the book and the motivations of the character, and he latched straight away onto this son trying to clear his father's name that in hollywood was what it was all about it was yep. a son trying to clear his father's name who'd been accused of being a spy and and um and, and i i learned a lot from the experience and uh i do keep in touch with with various people involved with it and uh who knows one day wonderful fingers crossed fingers crossed 2017 you published find me which is the first j.s munro thriller so tell us about relaunching with a pseudonym and it was you know it was a smash hit and and then after that i think you have a book a year almost yeah. pretty much a book year for the next few few years yeah that momentum I mean, that reinvention tell us about that and, and what effect it's had in your career so i wrote two more um I, in that story when when jane clone nesbitt became my agent uh claire conrad passed and very cleverly uh sold a trilogy uh, the problem was i didn't have any other ideas at the time she said well don't worry come up with a proposal for book two and book three so i came up with a detailed proposal for book two and uh i couldn't all i said for book three was china i think um, anyway, HarperCollins were happy. So I wrote the two next books. Um, I don't think they bore much resemblance to the proposal, but uh, they took the story on. So it is a trilogy of spy spy books. Uh, and then I, then I, you know, life gets in the way again. I, you know, we had to keep going on the, uh, on the work and with the young family and things who were growing up. And uh, I left it for a bit. I finished the third book in, I think, 2012. And uh, I left the Telegraph, you know, and I had to go back again to get my old job back. Uh, because the film hadn't been made and got a lot of ribbing from that. Everyone thought I'd moved to Hollywood, you know. Um, <laughs> but when the money ran out, I went back to the day job. And again, on the train, I started writing. Uh, I wanted to write something different. I felt I'd done enough. I said what I wanted to say in terms of espionage. Uh, and I and there was a big trend, sort of 2000, I don't know, you can't exactly when to start, pinpoint the start, but with psychological, dark psychological thrillers. Mm. And I felt there was a lot more there and without being too 
beating about the bush a much wider audience than than espionage uh espionage tends to be quite a male readership yeah. psychological thrillers probably 90 percent female my mm. publishers reckon um yeah. and uh i decided to uh Roll the dice again, and I changed my name, not a secret, although it was a secret when we sent the manuscript out, and, and had a gender-neutral name in J.S. Monroe, because, yeah. again, it felt if I had a male name writing for predominantly female audience, I, I wasn't I wasn't sure. I think the jury's still out, but it was considered to be maybe a strategic thing to do. And it's amazing how many authors use initials now, and how yeah. many authors' initials include the word J. You know, you go for J. S. J. Watson. You know, J.S. There's an awful lot. Um, J. P. Delaney. There's mm. a huge number. I, something about J. which works, and uh, J. S. Obviously, my real name is John Stock, so uh, J. S. Monroe worked well, and Monroe was my wife's mother's maiden name. So it's right. good to keep the mother-in-law on side. So I, I did all that. <laughs> and, um, and I wrote Find Me. And we had this kind of weird experience where we managed to get uh, overseas publishers buying it before we could sell it in the UK. Right. So right. we sold it to America. Uh, the best deal I've ever done was to Random House in Germany. Uh, they bought um, two. Yeah, they put support the one and the one book deal. And then, um, but... Uh, and we ended up selling it to, it was now sold in 14 countries, but it was about, I think we sold three overseas territories before we sold it to a UK publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, and that luckily was Head of Zeus, who had been, who'd been brilliant, who are now part of Bloomsbury. In those days, mm-hmm. they were an independent, quite a small independent publisher, punching well above their rate, their oh, weight. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and they've been very supportive. And uh, Find Me, I think another thing I've learned about Find Me, which is probably still the best selling of all the J.S. Monroe ones, is it's also the most marmite, and uh, and I think that I don't, I'm trying to work out what that really says is that you 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 should never ever not not that I have done, but I think that one was just written. I didn't have a publisher; I wrote it and then I sent it off. I just wrote the book I wanted to write. Wrote right. the book I wanted to read. I think that's the other key mm. thing: you have to write books which you want to read. Uh, and and it divided people. And you know, I got a lot of five stars, and I got a lot of one star reviews. And my publisher very early on said, that is a very good sign. Mm, you know, yeah. if you get all the kind of meh, three stars, that's all right, you know, but it's not, it doesn't mean anything. You're not yeah. having a reaction. And I, I do collect, uh, when I'm giving talks, I do I do collect the odd review. And my my favorite one star was, uh, as I write this review, my copy of Find Me is in flames in the wood-burning stove. <laughs> 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 which, <laughs> wow <laughs> which is kind of um i see it as a badge of honor now you know it's sort of book burning really wasn't it and that's that's quite an expression she just said it was too strong a meat for her uh, it was a very very thoughtful review um uh, she just said it was just too strong too dark uh and it is a dark book uh and a lot of my wife keeps saying why don't you write a nice book and then we meet someone who says oh no i love dark you know it's sort of it's amazing what it so it does it does divide people and uh it was it was one of those books where it has a sort of um a bait and switch sort of te- technique in the middle which was sort of again people have always commented on that you think the book's been going in one direction and it switches to another you know students are disappearing from top universities you think they're being siphoned off in some covert intelligence program picking off and their suicides are being faked and they're being taken off to something it sounds that sort of book and I was that was a residue of my time writing espionage. And my agent, Will Francis at Janko, um, took over and became my agent. He said, "Why don't you just why don't you just take it in a different direction? Make people think it's going to be a spy book, and then take it in a totally different direction." 
make it come out of something to do with his character and his family. So it switches course halfway through and it's pretty, yeah, in retrospect, it's, it is, it is very dark, but it makes it a, and that's what people have always, the people who like the book, they like that, that they think it's a, you know, it's not just a misdirection. It's a fundamental pulling the rug under your, uh, from under your feet, you know, and I, and it didn't happen in some crafty thing. This is what I'm going to do. It happened after I sent Will, my, my current agent, the first, 30,000 words. You see, yeah, this is great. You know, I'm enjoying this. It's a bit like the other stuff you've done. Why didn't you just take it in a different direction? Mm. And it was such good advice, but it wasn't, you know, in retrospect, it wasn't a creative moment of genius. It, again, it was just a suggestion, you yeah. know, from my agent. And I thought, ah, well, that will, that, that's an interesting idea. Uh, and uh, I, I'm eternally grateful to him because it went on to really launch the JS Monroe books, you know. So I think taking advice from people is great. Don't be too yes. proud to take advice from people. And um, and sometimes these things happen, the things that people like, but happen almost by accident rather than yeah. careful planning, you know. Yeah. Going back to that one-star review thing, I think it was um, – I heard Mark Kermo talking recently that he met Lars von Trier and told him that he loathed one of his films. He really, really hated one of his films. And von mm. Trier said to him, that's great because if you said, I thought it was okay – I would have been offended. You know, that would be the worst reaction. You know, if people either love it or hate it, that's, you know, that's that at least you've inspired something in someone. You've got a reaction. (laughs) Exactly. You've got a reaction. Yeah. I'm not saying it was, you know, it was all like that, but it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I think it's, it's going back to that thing of the initial, you know, when when I sent out those 25,000 words of Dead Spy Running, you know, one agent saying, I don't love it enough. Yes. I.e., I don't like it. And one agent saying, I love every word send me yes. more you know it is it is that's why we are in this business you know and please please let's not make sure try and prevent these algorithms coming up with oh, the ability yeah. to write bestsellers because it's an out it's a weird alchemy that goes on we don't know yeah. why what makes a bestseller isn't that there is no formula you can analyze bestsellers but ultimately there is that still that mysterious element of alchemy which we don't yeah. know yeah, uh, why and and that's what makes it so exciting. We've been doing this doing this podcast for six years. We still haven't found it found it, and I don't think we will. And I re- kind of hope that we don't. Let's change the subject a bit because you've been on the uh, committee of the Marlborough Literary Festival, and one mm. of the things that you've been involved with is live streaming uh, the yeah. festival. And it's I've been seeing conversations online recently about book events and festivals where during lockdown or just post lockdown where people you know may be vulnerable or can't make the festival they were able to pay and watch the festival online and that seems to be something that might be falling by the wayside but you seem to have kept it going and there's um well, there's we, this ongoing sort of debate about accessibility and yeah. the expense and what have you well we sort of did what what, what happened in 2019 we had our best ever festival we had amazing turnout in marlborough in, in wiltshire we have only have kind of the main town hall venue, the church hall, and the wonderful White Horse Bookshop on the High Street in Marlborough. Those are our three main venues. Uh, so 200-seater, 85-seater, and a kind of 50-seater. Um, and we do a lot of events over sort of three or four days. And, of course, that wasn't live stream. That was pre-COVID. And then 2020, we had to make the really sad decision to not do a festival at all. And 2021, we weren't sure how people would feel. I mean, quite a lot of our... Uh, regular festival goers were slightly older demographic I guess and they were we thought they'd be more nervous so we did a hybrid festival in 2021 where we uh people could come in but we live streamed it uh and we went top end and got a you know it cost a lot of money uh got mm. a, a yeah. very good production company to, to live stream these things that people could pay for live streaming tickets to watch it live and have a week afterwards to watch it 
And uh, we got quite a lot of people coming in. We had to, we couldn't do the same numbers because of social distancing. So we couldn't get 200 into town hall. We had to sort of separate people out. Probably got about half that. Um, uh, online went well. What was really nice was that we had a record of it, a legacy of the festival. And we were able to do a nice legacy highlights reel afterwards, which was great. Um, but actually, um, last October 2022, um, we actually decided not to live stream anything. Right. We took a decision to to stop live streaming it because we felt people really did miss that coming in, mm-hmm. and it was a bit of a punt, but it it worked, and we had we got up to within a couple of percent of the same box office sales that we did in 2019. So we kind of feel we're back to where we were. I you know it was it was really interesting the live streaming. It was a very stressful and and yeah. time consuming and yeah. uh yeah. you had to have a double you know backup broadband you had to two route you know we had to have two two special route, separate accounts for the for the routers and things with bt business and things and it was all we had to back up combine mobile phone signal all, all sorts of things we at one point we we're going to strap a satellite onto the town all route <laughs> and you know it all a satellite dish you know and it was all getting very very elaborate but I'm, I'm glad we did it and we always know we could do that again if god forbid we went back to that situation but you know what i think we're one of the festivals now that has definitely decided to carry on without just to get everyone in there real and we went back to the full number of events and our ticket sales went really well and, and it hasn't always been the case a lot of smaller festivals have have struggled we've always punched a bit above our weight but it's it's uh you know it's, it was a massive gamble not doing anything this time and hoping people would turn up but people did you know people just want to get on with it and uh we obviously took lots of measures and things you know but we we didn't have to restrict the number of people in the same way and um it, it was great to to have that's, that get back to pre-covid levels that's really interesting for our sixth anniversary episode we live streamed it and we beamed in my co-presenter from canada and the oh, guy yeah. running it was an experienced guy who worked in television and film and it nearly broke him it was- yeah. <laughs> uh, the poor guy it was it it pushed us all to the limit we pulled it off um but yeah it was it was a fun experience but anyway john what's coming next from you what what can we expect from js monroe well i've I've got the the, 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 no place hide is the next js monroe i'm 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 writing this i've just signed a a deal with little brown with the uh, the bridge street press which is an imprint of little brown uh to do a non-fiction book uh called the sleep room and it's it's kind of um it's 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 a kind of born out come out of my emerged out of my desire to do a lot of real world research into sort of into sort of the dark world of psychiatry and uh, big pharma, particularly in the nineteen fifties and sixties. And it's about this uh, controversial psychiatrist called William Sargent, who ran the psychiatric unit at St Thomas's Hospital from nineteen forty eight when the NHS was founded to nineteen seventy two when he retired, and he based himself at the Royal Waterloo opposite the IMAX Centre in Waterloo, uh, where um, which became part of St Thomas's in 1948. And on the top floor, uh, Ward 5, he had this narcosis room, which was the last chance saloon for people before they were lobotomised. And he gave them, uh, put them into a deep sleep for between three and up to one case, five months. Woke wow. them up two or three times a week to give them electric shock therapy. Uh, sedated them with a very, very strong cocktail of uh, tranquilizers and barbiturates and uh, narcoleptic drugs. And um, they were taken every now and then. They were woken by the Nightingale nurses and taken to the bathroom or to be fed, but they weren't really conscious. They were sort of stumbling because they were so heavily sedated. And uh, a lot of survivors are coming forward now and saying, what what the hell was all that about? Yeah. And um, 
the sergeant was a very interesting guy. He he also had very close connections with the intelligence services. Um, and he'd done a lot of work in the war, sorting out people from Dunkirk at an army uh, uh, at an army hospital, Belmont, which was turned into an army hospital. And so his connections were strong with Port and Down. He was. Uh, I've got all sorts of freedom of information requests going into Port and Down at the moment about this guy. And um, there's a, there's a there's a slight whiff of that. What some of the things he was doing at the Royal Waterloo might have been funded by the intelligence services. I haven't managed to prove that yet. There's an awful lot of mad conspiracy theories out there. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you all know what sort of rabbit holes you can go down. So I'm having to be very strict and get everything very, very tough criteria to what's going to go in the book. But it is throwing up some really interesting stuff. He definitely had good connections with MI5 and MI6. I don't think he was on their payroll, but he was called in to check the sanity of Soviet defectors, for instance. Um, but similarly, at the same time he was doing this, the sleep room, this continuous narcosis treatment, as it was called, this was going on in America, uh, funded by the CIA at a hospital in Montreal, just across the border in Canada. And it was also going on in Australia. And both in Canada and in Australia, a lot of compensation has been now given to patients, but here, nothing complete stonewalling. And uh, so I'm investigating the whole thing with a huge amount of research. I've been down at Kew at the National Archives. I've been living at the Welcome Collection, right. going through all their medical archives, all private papers of William Sargent, which has been really fascinating. And it's throwing out a lot of a lot of interesting stuff. And I'm having to deal with some, uh, you know, in the, in the thrill of the chase, you suddenly realise I got a call this only this morning from a, someone who went in there twice uh, in the 664 and 72 71 and very fragile still yeah and I'm, I'm doing an interview with them this afternoon and they want their story to be told uh but they um they haven't even told their their children or in this case second husband that they were in a psychiatric unit and in, in their when they were in their late teens and wow. this that... unit was mainly for people from the age of 15 to 25 and they're predominantly young women it's not all the case there were older people there as well but it was predominantly young women who were sent there and put to sleep for this time and given these huge numbers of shocks 30 40 electric shocks so it's it's i'm having to be very very careful that i have to remember the real people involved here who are still alive yeah. and I'm, I'm trying to record their their stories before it's too late really and uh it's proving the, the most I've, i don't think i've been as excited as this since well for, for a very long time because it's it's real world research but i feel like it's something i'm telling a story that needs to be told Wow, that sounds extraordinary. Well, until then, folks, you've got no place to hide and an incredible backlist from John. John Monroe, thank you. Uh, John Stock, rather, or J.S. Monroe, uh, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Hope to speak to you again soon. Thanks a lot, Mark. Cheers. Mark, there's so much to unpack in this interview, but, you know, we're going to do an extended, extended <laughs> version yeah, yeah. after the podcast. Yeah, yeah. But let's just, let's just quickly talk about this idea of... Um, <laughs> This idea of the train, I want to call it the train novel, because this keeps coming up. And yep. it started with you. It started with you telling the story about how you wrote books on the train commuting I to I didn't work. invent it, but you know. <laughs> no, but, but you, you, you kind of popularized it. But the, the, the thing that I think is really fascinating is here's another example of someone who fit a book around their busy life. Mm. You know, that they, they had to get on a train, they had to go, go to work. And rather than just sit there and read the paper or sit there and wordle, um, which would be fun, I must admit, mm. um, or sit there and look out the window, you know, uh, or sleep. <laughs> a lot of people like to do that on trains. He wrote a book and it got me thinking, just like we've had like code names, if you like, on this podcast for um, 
people that support you are, you know, find your Julie. Okay. Find your Julie. For anyone, yeah. for long-term yeah. listeners, you'll understand what that is. If you don't know what that is, listen back to some of the podcasts and you'll, you'll, you'll get the vibe of that. But I want to introduce a new, a new phrase into the lexicon of the bestseller experiment. And it's, I want to call it the train novel. Yeah. The train novel represents something that's been written, not just on a train, but it's been written whilst you're waiting around or whilst you're doing other things. And I think it's really important for people to grasp this idea that if you've got a busy life, you can still write a book. There is still time in your day. How many, how many people have we spoken to that have written in doctor's waiting rooms or waiting for a haircut while yeah. being on a bus? You know, I remember our gingerbread episode. Someone was, it's a single parent writing on a bus. Uh, Simon Scarrow wrote most of his first novel, I think, uh, on a train and for commuters like his father. You know, so, uh, and then John in this interview. So, and I, I did so much writing on my commute into London. It was, it was a gift. It was kind of, I, I realized it was a slice of the day. And before that, when I was a sales rep driving around the country, I'd write in laybys, you know. I pull yeah. over, have my lunch, and then you know get the pad out or or the or the laptop and just start writing in a layby. And then before that, when I was on the the night shift at Waterstones in Wimbledon, where you, if you got two customers in an evening, you were lucky. You know, I was there till nine o'clock at night, and yeah, I'd, I'd be writing on the shift there. You know, got wrote my first play that way. So it's finding those little spaces, those little slices of emptiness in the day, you know, where you normally you could be staring out of a window. And let's not underestimate the power of staring out of a window. That is part of the writing process, people. Yeah. But, you know, frankly, it's a lot more productive to get um, words on the page. So, f- yeah, yeah. The, the train novel, it's a thing. It's definitely a thing. It's definitely a thing. So we want, so as part of the fun and games of this, we know there's a ton of other places that you write your books and we want to know what they are. Mm. Uh, are you like our, uh, one of our academy members who writes, you know, for 10 minutes um, whilst they're waiting for their kids to come out of their classroom at school? Yeah. You know, do you, do, and again, I, I want to stress as well, it's not just about writing. It's also about thinking about your novel. Mm. Um, and so, you know, because that has, that's part of the writing process, but we have to, th- we think about thinking about our novel. It's like, we have to almost schedule time to think about our novel if we're not doing it naturally. What I have noticed is when people are really into their books, and everyone will understand this, is if they're really into it, they can't stop thinking about their book. They're, they're thinking, uh, you know, there's someone's chat with them and they're like, oh, oh, sorry, I was just miles away trying to work out how yeah. to finish that chapter. Right. I know that happens. and But when we get to that place, it's great because then the momentum's with us. But I think for most writers, getting that momentum is probably one of the biggest, hardest struggles. It's getting enough writing in the day to get that flow that staring into space moment that's where having a julie really makes and and for listeners go back and listen to the angela marson's episode i'll put a link in the show notes if you want to find out what this julie thing is all about because it's having a supportive partner and that doesn't mean someone who you know sacrifices everything so you can write your novel it can mean just someone who understands that when you're staring into empty space and you're in the middle of a draft that that means you probably shouldn't be disturbed because you'll think, <laughs> or just understanding that when the door is shut, or if you're on the train, or if you're in, if you're, if you have just that twenty minutes uh, in the evening or first thing in the morning, they understand that you know that's the time when you 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 shouldn't be disturbed. Having having someone like that is, uh, it's just essential. It's it just yeah. makes such a difference. So where do you write your train novel? Drop us a note, come to the contact us page on the website, bestsellerexperiment.com. 
let us know come onto socials twitter facebook wherever just let us know we want to kind of start compiling a list because firstly it's going to be brilliant i know we're going to get some really obscure stuff out there but you know i think that we want to encourage people the majority of people i think who are out there struggling to write their book because they say i don't have the time i don't i can't find the time in a day and you know this keeps coming up so we really want to campaign and we want to mm. champion this on this podcast because we think everyone can write a book even even with the most insane kind of schedules and and also to be honest folks if you've got an insane schedule and who doesn't to be honest nowadays um it's even more important to find that space and to snatch that five yeah. minutes for yourself because that's the thing that will keep you your battery filled. It's the thing that will keep you going through the the hard stuff that you might be dealing with, you know, the parenting challenges or the t- troubles at work or the just the stress or health issues, whatever it might be for you. That little bit of writing, it's like it's like your meditation for the day, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I really do think there's a there's a potential link there. So we're going to champion this the rest of this year. Uh, we're going to champion this, and we but we want to know where do you write? How do you do it? Let's inspire other people who thought, oh, I never thought I could write there. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So brilliant. Now, folks, this is a very, as you know, a brilliantly in-depth interview, but very long. So we are going to do the rest of the uh, um, discussions around this in the extended. And man, is there a lot of oh, stuff boy. we're going to be talking about, folks. If you're interested in any of the following, you must, must join us on the extended. We're going to talk about... Um, Never assuming reader knowledge. We're going to talk about research and the plumbing and wiring. Absolutely brilliant analogy. We're going to talk about composite characters. This is huge, really important to like think about. We're going to talk about this idea of getting in late and out early in scenes. Mm-hmm. We're going to delve into the unique book launches and how it doesn't have to be extravagant, but if it's unique, it will get the attention of the press and people that might want to come. We're going to talk about milestones, book deals and, and sizzle reels. We're going to also talk about self-belief and submissions because no, this is a very important thing for, for where a lot of people fall down and you get rejections and you kind of feel bad and give up. But um, as J.S. Munro taught us, like, wow, you know, if you've got that self-belief to keep going, good things can happen. Mm. Um, we're going to delve very quickly into ending consultants because that's something I've never <laughs> come across. I love that. <laughs> Um, we're going to talk about the the uh, film options as well, which is something Mark knows a little bit about. And what we're going to call the Marmite novel, this idea of one stars and five stars are actually better than three stars. Mm. And finally, writing the book that you want to write and read. So folks, if any of that interests you, then do join us on the extended. Just sign up, become a patron. It's 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 a coffee a month. Um, you know, I know everyone says that. It's really corny, but it's true. Um, do do come and support us on the podcast um, and get all of the extra bonuses and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Well, folks, if you missed the extended, oh man, there was so much. What, how many, 45 minutes did we just do, Mark? 45 minutes. If there's one thing that you, that, that, that I can encourage you to sign up to the extended, uh, I, I gave out a little secret about how producers create music when they have vocalists <laughs> in their studio. And it's very, very relevant to how you create your characters. Um, something we haven't talked about before on the podcast before, I Indeed. think, Mark. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's worth, that's worth it alone. I think that will change the way you think about creating characters just by understanding that one thing. So do do delve in. Mr. Stay, uh, social media this week. Well, social media is going to lead directly into something new and exciting that we're talking about. So uh, SC Gowland, Steve Gowland uh, on Twitter, he's made a public declaration after five days of no writing. Steve, Steve, Steve. He said, I need to get this book finished. So it's public declaration time. His new book, 
Delusions and Dragons, and he's got the cover for it. It's a great title. He says, I will have finished Delusions and Dragons by Wednesday, 26th of April for publication one month later. And that's a de- deadline. But Steve is on the 200 words a day. He's normally there every single day, and he has missed a few days. I did notice. Um, so, yes, hashtag 200 words a day. So that's in the diary, Steve. Good luck. Fingers crossed. But uh, yeah, 200 words a day, Mr. Dean. We're yes. excited about this, aren't so we? So folks, well, I'm very excited. We've been doing the 200 word day challenge for, I think about three years now. And it is we're just blown away by how much it's changed people's lives. It's got books written that would never have otherwise been written. It's given people a, this daily writing habit. So we're taking it up to the next level, folks. We're taking it to the next level. We are going to be launching the monthly 200 word a day challenge. So we are now um, kind of mid-April as we record this. By the time you hear this, it'll be a bit later. But if you would like to take on the challenge of writing a minimum of 200 words every day in May, rhymes, isn't it? Uh, then come <laughs> along to the Academy, academy.bestsellerexperiment.com and click on the 200 word challenge link. And you can actually sign up. You will get access into the Academy, the 200 word challenge bit of the Academy. Um, so you'd be able to also have a little preview and see what is in the Academy. But the idea is, is that you bank your words every day. Now for people that manage to do this, we are going to talk about this on the podcast. You're going to get a name checked. We are, we're going to be monitoring who's doing it. Um, we want to see if you can write 200 words a day minimum and do that for every day in May. So if you want to take on that challenge, come and join us today. If you're already part of the 200 word challenge, you've already signed up, come along and say, I want to do the May challenge. And just as a little teaser, if, uh, you know, it's a few days before, it's a week before, start it now and do a warm up stretch. And we say seven days, you know, if you can do seven days in a row, then you'll, by the time you get into May, you'll be absolutely flying. But if you want to start on May 1st, that's a Monday, then join us as well. So pop along to academy.bestsellerexperiment.com, click on the 200 word challenge button in the navigation and join us for what's going to be a brilliant celebration of your writing. And hopefully lots, lots more words than you would write. Now, I will also say this. There are many people who say, well, 200 words a day, that's easy. There are people that do mm-hmm. NaNoWriMo and do 50,000. You can set your goal of 50,000 words if you want to do that in a month. But the, you win the challenge if you do a minimum of 200 words a day and you write every day. That's how this works. So it's a lot more achievable and it's something that everyone can do, whether you're churning out thousands of words a month or if you're just going to be doing 200 words a day. So do join us. It's about creating a habit. That's the thing. This isn't just going to last a month. This is going to last your lifetime. And once you get into this, it's, you you know, it makes all the difference. I do it. Um, my wife wrote a novel off the back of it. We've got loads of people on there uh, who've, who've done this, but yeah, now it's your turn. Absolutely. And actually, Mark doesn't know this, but um, we're going to, as part of the fun and games of this over the next couple of months, we're going to delve in and look at an all-timers list of all right. the people who have submitted <laughs> their words and 200-word challenge. And Mark, I looked at the figures the other day, and I'm not going to tell you where you are on the list, but I will reveal that. Because honestly, as somebody, I mean, Mark, you've been incredible. Like, honestly, Mark, Mark does the 200 word day challenge and Mm. he banks words every single day. I mean, it's like practicing what you preach. And exactly. um, Yeah, we're going to, we're going to see where is Mark, but also where are you in that list? Um, And we're going to have an amnesty (laughs) if you've not submitted your words every day, because we know a lot of people have been doing 200 word challenge and they've, they've not been 
diligently banking their words. We're going to give you a window of opportunity to bank your words. Um, so we'll see where everyone is in the all-timer <laughs> challenge. Brilliant. Lots to look forward to on that, folks. So brilliant stuff. Brilliant. Well, listen, thank you so much to everyone, um, especially Jasmine Monroe, as our special guest this week, for an incredibly uh, you know, enlightening interview. Um, thank you to our editors, JD and Dave, and everything they do to make this happen. And Mark, where can people find out about ourselves and contact us on, uh, on the web? Yeah, pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there. You can get in touch with us there. Or we're on Facebook, Bestseller Experiment. Twitter and Instagram is at Bestseller XP. Drop us a line. And if you've enjoyed the show, subscribe. Uh, give us a rating. Give us a review wherever you get your podcast. It makes all the difference. Brilliant. Thanks so much, everyone. It's a goodbye from Mark 1. And a goodbye from Mark 2. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.